There is power, there is power in the band of working men. When they stand, when they stand, hand in hand, hand in hand, that's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land. One industrial union grand. In 1933, four years into the Great Depression, not a single recognized union existed in any industrial plant in the United States. By 1954, the peak year of U.S. industrial organization, 35% of the U.S. workforce were union members. How did this organization happen? What can we learn from this history that can help us organize today? One industrial union grand. One industrial union America will never be a socialist country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Every bit of economic activity that produces new wealth in society is a creative act by working people. Everything that is manufactured, built, transported, or prepared for consumption has been transformed by living human labor into something socially useful. Through our hands passes all that wealth, and in our hands the means of production and distribution spring to life. This gives our class enormous, that is to say, decisive social power. We can bring the entire economic system to a halt simply by collectively putting our hands in our pockets and ceasing work. This gives us the potential to take control over the entire operation and to begin making all the decisions regarding what is produced, under what conditions of work, and how the product is distributed to society. But without organization, the working class is nothing more than raw material for exploitation. Exploitation of our labor for the enrichment of the owners of the factories, railways, cargo vessels, and retail distribution centers, and robbery of our bank accounts by landlords, mortgage bankers, and credit companies. Without organization, each worker faces the concentrated power of the capitalist class as an individual and is easily exploited, intimidated, and robbed at every turn. Without organization, our daily struggle for existence is a lonely reminder of our powerlessness over the forces of production that our labor and the labor of our forebears created. And without organization, we have jobs only at the will of the employer and only under the conditions of labor and rates of pay granted by the employer. The basic unit of organization is the labor union. As of 2019, only 10.3% of U.S. workers were members of unions. That rate was only 6.2% for private industry, with higher rates for government employees. But it wasn't that long ago that basic industry was completely organized. 
powerful unions like the United Auto Workers, the United Steel Workers, and the United Mine Workers won wage and benefit gains for industrial workers under the threat of disruption of the huge profit streams of the automobile, steel, and coal corporations through the calling of nationwide strikes. Paid vacations, health benefits, and sick leave were won. Most importantly, concessions over the conditions and pace of work were extracted from the employers. The massive organization of industrial workers into the CIO in the 1930s and 40s was the result of the radicalization of workers who suffered catastrophic declines to their living standards during the Great Depression, which began in 1929. But radicalization and unrest are not enough in and of themselves to bring about change. Organization is required. And three strikes in 1934 inspired American workers to take that step towards organization. Those three were the San Francisco waterfront strike, the strike of the auto parts workers in Toledo, Ohio, and the great Minneapolis Teamster strikes. What set all three of these struggles apart from previous struggles that had not been so positive was the presence in the union ranks of socialist and communist leaders who knew how to organize and demonstrated they knew how to stand up to the assault by the employers and the government on the workers and win. We're going to take a look at the example of Minneapolis tonight. At the outset of the 1930s, Minneapolis was an anti-union paradise for capitalists. No strikes had been won in the previous decade, and the unions that existed at the time were craft-oriented setups that divided workers along the lines of what task they did, what, kind of, what particular kind of work they performed, rather than the common place of employment or the common employer that they all worked for. What is more, during the reactionary political period of the 1920s, the conservative trade union leaders of the American Federation of Labor had collaborated with the capitalist government to root out any pockets of radicalism left over from the pre-World War I period with a series of red purges in 1925 and 26. To make matters worse, the Communist Party in 1929 had announced that capitalism had reached its final stage, its third period, and as a result, launched a campaign to split the labor movement by launching its own separate red unions, which basically just contained their members and their followers. But it isolated the most radicalized workers from the bulk of the organized workers in the, in the uh, existing trade unions. To cap the situation off, many of the most dedicated and theoretically developed Marxists in the Communist Party had been expelled as Trotskyists. But it was the Trotskyists in Minneapolis, organized into the Communist League of America, who constituted the most experienced and knowledgeable activists in the labor movement, and it was with a handful of members that they began the campaign to transform Minneapolis into a union town. The idea was hatched by two veteran Marxists, Ray Dunn and Carl Skoglund. Dunn was a well-traveled former IWW organizer, who had been the Communist Party's candidate for U.S. Senate from Minnesota in 1928. 
Skoglund was an experienced socialist trade unionist who had been blackballed in Sweden for his political union activity, could no longer find a job, and made his way across the Atlantic in order to continue his socialist organizing here in the United States. Minnesota winters are very cold, and at that time, coal was the almost universally used heating material. There were a number of coal yards scattered around Minneapolis, employing mainly unskilled labor in backbreaking work, shoveling coal into trucks over long hours for delivery to homes and businesses for heat. A few Communist League members got jobs in one of the coal yards, and then slowly and carefully over the course of 1933 began recruiting a nucleus of people who were ready to help organize the union. Although the Teamsters Union was divided up into separate local organizations, one for milk drivers, one for grocery drivers, and so on, there was one sort of mongrel local which contained members who were not numerous enough handling a particular commodity to form their own separate locals. This was General Drivers Local 574, with a membership at the time of no more than 75. This was chosen as the vehicle for organizing the coal yard workers. The concept was to win a victory for the union by tying up the coal yards, winning a strike, and then to parlay that win into a campaign to organize the entire trucking industry in Minneapolis. The workers were hamstrung by a corrupt and ineffective leadership on the local level. The Teamsters Joint Council and the business agent were not really interested in any organizing, didn't really know how anyway, but they were up against a contradiction. Their power and prestige depended on the number of workers paying dues to the union. The intelligent course in a situation like this is not to simply loudly denounce the labor leadership and then engage the union bureaucrats in a head-on fight for control of the union. If you're new in a union, you haven't had time to build a base to lead such a fight anyway. The key in a situation like this is to find points of support through which organizing can take place. And that is a key difference between Marxism and ultra-leftism. The ensuing battles in Minneapolis would confirm the correctness of this approach. The workers were also faced with the extremely conservative international president, Daniel Tobin, whose efforts to maintain an iron grip over the union's affairs dovetailed with the government's attempts to tie up workers' struggles in long deliberations of labor boards, directed mediation of conflicts, forced arbitration, and other methods which sought to take the influence of the rank-and-file members themselves away from the outcome of conflicts with the employers. The effect among workers from this was a deep resentment against the union leadership for its past failures and a skepticism towards the possibility of any meaningful organization of any kind. During the first couple of years of the Depression, workers also tended to want to keep their heads down, just happy to hold on to whatever little work they could get. 
but there was a bit of an upturn in 1933, and that created a little bit more self-confidence in the workforce. In addition, the newly elected president, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, in an effort to head off working-class radicalism, had included a point in his National Industrial Recovery Act that purported to guarantee the right to organize. It didn't, but workers believed it. They took that to mean they had the government's support, and that put wind in the union sales for organizing. Another important factor should be noted. At that time, the Minnesota Farmer Labor Party had a real organized base among workers and farmers there, and its candidate had won the governor's seat in the most recent election. Illusions in the reformist governor's support for unionization was widespread among the workers, uh, but this had a positive side as well. It brought pressure on the governor, whose base of support could quickly evaporate if he came out too openly in support of the employers in any conflict. Finally, the local capitalists and small business people had an NGO set up, the, the Citizens Alliance which imposed discipline on businesses in Minneapolis to resist any and all efforts at unionization and maintained close, cozy relations with local government and police officials. This outfit was adamantly opposed to the closed shop and would try every dirty trick in the book to undercut and defeat organizing efforts. Now, in this situation, it was not possible for the organizers to acquire official union posts, and the local officers could not be trusted to wage an effective fight. So a tactic was devised wherein a rank-and-file organizing committee was established, which functioned pretty much independently from the local leadership. But support was found in the person of one particularly sympathetic Teamster official, who was the local president, uh, along with the local's vice president. And uh, that made getting things done quite a bit easier. It also aided efforts to gain support from other unions. A key break came when the coal company that Dunn and Skokland worked for merged with several smaller coal yards, providing a larger base of workers from which to build the union nucleus. By January 1934, the organizing committee's careful work had gained enough support that it was now necessary to move into action. A list of demands was drawn up and a strike was called for early February against all the coal yards. The strike took place just as a polar cold snap hit town and the public clamor for coal put big pressure on the coal companies to settle up and get the coal moving again. The organizing committee had involved the newly won union members in mass picketing, and some of the younger members came up with a very effective innovation of cruising pickets, whereby cars full of young strikers would independ uh, intercept scab coal trucks on the streets of Minneapolis. And if they couldn't convince the scab driver to come over to the strike, would simply dump his load of coal in the street and move on. It took just a few days for the strike to register success. Minor improvements in pay and hours were won, but most importantly, they gained the win of union recognition 
throughout the industry. Word of the win spread like wildfire throughout Minneapolis, and enthusiasm for unionization was reborn. Following this lightning victory, the organizing committee got to work visiting loading docks, warehouses, garages, wherever workers gathered. And they found that workers were waiting for them to show up, ready and eager to sign up with the union. Now, the organizers not only signed up new dues payers, but they also had the thought, well, who knows better what the conditions are inside of the workplace than the workers themselves? So they involved the new members in coming up with the demands that would be included in the list of demands given to the employers. Because they were adding their direct input into the union's demands, each new member also became an organizer for the union, signing up more of their co-workers as they explained just exactly what the union was fighting for. It didn't take long for this campaign to reach completion and a show of their accumulated strength became necessary in order to show the whole membership how strong they were and to rally the forces for a showdown with the employers. A mass meeting was held in mid-April in a packed theater right downtown. After the speeches were finished, a recess was taken to sign up even more new members, bringing the union's locals strength to 3,000 members Quite a jump from the 75 just one year previously. The Citizens Alliance was also preparing on the other side, and it began lining up its forces to break any action by the union and to organize the hiring of scabs for continuing operations in case of a strike. The Volunteer Organizing Committee countered this move by reaching out to the unemployed workers through the Agency of Communist League members who had also long been members of the local unemployed organizations. Teamsters Local 574 began organizing an unemployed section of their own local and invited unemployed workers to come join the picket squads it was beginning to organize. The local also reached out to the area's farmers to arrange for them to sell their produce directly to small grocers in order to avoid the action when the strike closed down the main market. Workers in other unions were also contacted in order to gain official endorsement of Local 574's demands in involving the Central Labor Council in backing the coming strike. And a workers... A workers' committee put together a women's auxiliary for the, uh, the local. It was organized in order to involve family members of the union members in solidarity activity and active participation in duties at strike headquarters. And the strike headquarters was a sight to behold as well. A big garage was rented right downtown Minneapolis and outfitted with meeting rooms, a commissary, a vehicle maintenance bay for the, uh, for the cruising picket cars, and a hospital. A doctor was hired to treat minor injuries, and nurses volunteered to help care for the wounded. When the union's demands were presented to the employers, the employers insolently refused to even talk. When this was reported to a great mass meeting of union members, there was a unanimous vote to strike.
Rather than leave organization decisions in the hands of the local officers, a strike committee of 75 rank-and-file union members was elected to conduct all aspects of the strike. As soon as the strike was called in May, new members began streaming into the strike headquarters. Local 574 had soon doubled its membership to 6,000 workers in Minneapolis. At the beginning of the strike, the streets were quiet. No attempts were made to move anything by truck. No attempts were made to break the strike. Yellow cab drivers were, uh, it came around the, uh, to join the local as well. And soon they were on strike for their own demands. Now, nothing on wheels moved in Minneapolis without union approval, and cruising picket squads made sure of that. Mass picketing was needed all over town, but with new reinforcements, it was no problem to organize the necessary forces. The Citizens Alliance got the police to mobilize, to start beating up pickets, and a few pickets started coming in with broken bones and bad cuts. But this only stiffened the resolve of the strikers and won the strike more public support. It was at this point that a force of special deputies was organized by the Citizens Alliance to uh, augment the police forces. And an attempt was made to physically smash the mass pickets being uh, used to help keep the main market closed down. In what became known as the Battle of Deputies Run, the strikers gave back much more than what they received, chased the special deputies and all the cops out of the market, and kept it closed down. Now, in the course of this strike, masses of workers learned the kind of lessons only a few will get from reading books. They discovered that the police are not a neutral force for law and order, but 100% on the side of the employers against the workers. They learned that the capitalist press lies and distorts news reports in order to demoralize strikers and to turn public opinion against the strikers. And they learned that their democratic rights are not guaranteed by a piece of paper defended by a neutral government, but instead had to be won in action by themselves and defended over and over again. They learned that the government would try through trickery and shady maneuvers with mediators and labor boards to take away behind closed doors what had been won in the streets. After a 10-day strike, an agreement was reached that did not fully meet all of the union's demands, but did offer significant concessions on wages and hours and conditions of work. But again, most importantly, it won official recognition of the union as the representative for all drivers and inside workers. This agreement was approved at a mass union meeting and the strike was over. Local 574 continued its organizing and soon had over 7,000 members in the local. Other unions in the area also came back to life as new blood began streaming into the old organizations. But the Citizens Alliance also went to work and began agitating among the trucking employers to start chipping away at the union contract. It soon became clear that the employers would be forcing another, another strike soon, so Local 574 began rebuilding its support efforts in preparation for further action. 
a huge march and rally of Minneapolis union members, numbering some 12,000 workers, was held on Friday, July 6th, and was cheered on by some 6,000 onlookers from the sidewalks. Picket captains from the May strike marshaled the the march and made sure that uh, everything stayed orderly. And a motorcycle squad of teenage couriers from the strike rode ahead of the march, clearing traffic in its path. At the rally, the crowd roared its approval of the union's four demands, that the employers respect the union's right to represent all its members, to sign a written agreement with the union, to grant retroactive raises for all union members back to May, and that if these demands were not met by July 11th, all truck traffic would be shut down by strike once again. With the experience of the May strike under its belt, Local 574 elected a new strike committee of 100 members. Now, these weren't just random members. These were workers who had proven themselves in action during the May strike and as such had close connection with and really represented the union ranks. And rather than sending in a negotiating team to conduct business in a back room with the employers, a contact committee of two members was elected from the strike committee of 100 as liaison with the employers. This committee explained to the employers that they were not empowered to make any decisions, couldn't agree to any concessions. All they could do was just listen and report back to the strike committee what had taken place in the meeting. This made all the deliberations of the leading body democratic and under close supervision of the ranks themselves through their proven, trusted leaders. The local also began issuing the very first daily strike bulletin ever issued by a union in the United States called the Organizer. This was a modest two-page tabloid, but quickly became the go-to source for news to counter the lies of the big business press. It was sold on the street by volunteers. It was uh, sold on bar counters and in small stores. And with the solidarity donations it was receiving, it became self-financing. The paper circulation quickly rose to 10,000 daily copies. The Citizens Alliance countered this by harassing one print shop after another uh, to get them to stop printing it, until the union finally found a shop that uh, uh, wouldn't give in to any of the pressure, and the, uh, and the paper continued publication all the way through the end of the strike. The Citizens Alliance also received a gift, a propaganda gift, from Teamsters International President Daniel Tobin at this point. He published a red-baiting editorial tirade against the leadership of Local 574 in the July issue of the Union's magazine. The Citizens Alliance took this editorial and published it as an advertisement in the Minneapolis papers and used this as a way to try to split the Union, to divide the membership from from the leadership. But the Union members were not swayed by this attack and stuck with the Trotskyist leaders who had proven they knew what they were doing and could deliver the goods. In this strike, the police were armed with shotguns for the first time and instructed to use them to break the strike. An ambush was organized against a squad of unarmed pickets 
67 of them ended up shot, three in critical condition, and two of those later died. This armed assault enraged the working class of Minneapolis. A protest rally drew 15,000 angry workers, and the rostrum was filled with local union officers and leaders of the local farmers' organizations. The Farmer Labor Party governor had put the National Guard on alert and was looking for any excuse to deploy them and break the strike. The union's leaders had to tread a fine line between escalating the conflict to an unsustainable level and losing momentum. Farrell Dobbs, in his book Teamster Rebellion, points out that if the situation that existed in Minneapolis were more generally existing throughout the United States at this point, that a serious question of which class rules society might be posed. But because the struggle was confined to Minneapolis, it would have been suicide to try to take more than was possible to win out of the situation. In any attempt to do so, could turn a victory into a defeat. The funeral march for murdered striker Henry Ness was attended by 20,000 workers. Demands were raised from various quarters for the firing of the police chief, and 140,000 signatures were gathered on petitions for impeachment of the mayor. With the political situation rapidly deteriorating, and the police unable to muster enough forces to protect enough truck movements to break the strike, the governor finally called in the National Guard and ordered them to seize the strike headquarters and arrest the strike leaders. His intention was transparent. Cut off the head and then ask for a truly representative leadership body to come forward and make a deal to end the strike. What he got was the secondary leadership of the strike committee of 100 who were in full agreement with everything the central leaders were doing because they had been participants in all of the discussions and nothing was happening behind closed doors. The strength of a democratic union whose workings are transparent to the membership was demonstrated here in admirable fashion. The governor finally found it expedient to withdraw the National Guard release the strike leaders, and return the strike headquarters to the Union. Then followed a war of attrition, which was finally ended by the intervention of President Roosevelt himself. Now, Roosevelt had been concerned about helping Governor Olson survive the upcoming November elections. And in order to get the strike off of his hands, he sent in a new federal mediator with orders to get this strike ended no matter what. And the upshot of that was that Local 574 won a sweeping victory. From just a couple of Marxists in a coal yard in early 1933, by August 21st, 1934, the entire trucking industry in Minneapolis had been organized and the city had been transformed from an open shop bastion into a union town. For the first time, the Teamsters Union had been organized on an industrial basis, and this set the stage for an 11-state over-the-road organizing campaign over the next couple of years. What is more, 
the solid victory in Minneapolis, along with the successful struggles in Toledo and San Francisco, laid the basis for the wave of sit-down strikes that organized the auto industry in 1936, and the general organization of all the mass production basic industries in the country. Marxists sometimes hear criticisms from the action-oriented activists who insist that something has to be done now. All you Marxists do is sit around reading books by old dead men. Theoretical preparation, however, is a guide to action. Karl Marx once wrote that material force can only be overthrown by material force, but theory itself becomes a material force when it has seized the masses. This is what happened in Minneapolis. The innovations introduced by the theoretically prepared Trotskyist in Minneapolis were keys to building a powerful democratic and class conscious union whose gains still resonate with us today. Teamster Local 574 leader Farrell Dobbs, who was one to the Trotskyist movement in the course of this campaign, wrote the book on the struggle, Teamster Rebellion. His dedication of this book is a fitting way to end this presentation. To the men and women who gave me unshakable confidence in the working class, the rank and file of General Drivers Local 574. Bella, da, da.